Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting educational episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens and I'm sitting in the studio behind the broadcast desk of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who may be listening this evening. Yes, thank you to you for tuning in and for listening to this program tonight. And go ahead and encourage others to tune in. We've got our full 90 minutes ahead of us. In a world where we are bombarded with so many differing philosophies, it's sometimes challenging to calibrate our biblical worldview or to live with a calibrated biblical worldview. Pastor, can you give me your input on this quote that I saw shared and promoted by a Christian this week? And the quote is, speak to your children as if they are the wisest, kindest, most beautiful humans on earth. For what they believe is what they will become. Is that compatible with the Bible? I am a little bit hesitant to to endorse it because I think the, the Bible view of humanity is that we are fallen creatures. And I think we need to make uh, the children aware that um, they're fallen, they're sinful, uh, they have a depraved nature. But I also think it's important to balance that with the idea that they have worth and dignity because they're made in the image of God. So I think there is some benefit to saying to a child that you're beautiful, you're intelligent, you're smart. But we also got to uh, balance that by making them aware that there is a fallen part to the nature that needs to be balanced with that. They need to be very watchful. And even though you might have an intelligent, smart, beautiful person, and they could still have a depraved desires and emotions, and you need to make them very much aware of that as well. So I think you need to balance it, not just present the positive. As a matter of fact, if you go through the biblical teaching, you'll always find that when Paul mentions negative, he mentions positive. It's always that balance in Scripture. And I think when you're parenting, I think that uh, responsible parenting involves both the positive and the negative. Tonight we're going to continue to develop and discuss the topic of abstinence. Now before you say, but Nathan, this is the third week you've been talking about this topic. How much time can you spend talking about abstinence? Pastor, why are we spending so much time on this topic? Well, I think anybody who is aware of what's going on, the moral state of the society, uh, including the church and uh, the home, I, I don't think there can be any dispute that we are in a crisis and immorality is so rampant in society, it is virtually practice. Um, there are people who even doubt that um, that there are people who are still pure because it's become so rampant. Uh, of course, the church's job has always been to 
curtail um, immorality and is trying to put a hindrance. We're supposed to be salt and light. Salt is there to hold back corruption. And therefore, the message of the church must address these kind of issues. I also feel sometimes, by the way, that um, people get involved in these matters because I don't think they get the full information. They get a one-sided presentation. It's all glory, all glitter, all gold, all bright. But I don't think they are made aware of the dangers, uh, life-threatening dangers and health dangers that uh, they're exposed to. And consequently, someone has to inform them, and I think the church has to do that. You can't look to the media. You can't look to uh, these romantic books. You can't look to uh, these celebrities. Uh, Most of their lifestyle is contrary to the biblical norm. So the church has got a job to do in that respect, and I think we need to speak to this issue because it's such a major problem they're faced with. In the first week that we discussed abstinence, uncovered some of the fundamental aspects of abstinence. What is abstinence? What is the biblical view of sex? And what the Bible teaches about sexual purity. And then last week, we spent the majority of the 90-minute program discussing a lot of different STDs, uh, AIDS, HPV, genital herpes, hepatitis B, tecumeniasis, I believe I got that pronounced correctly. Are there other STDs that we should be aware of, Pastor? Yeah, I was tempted to uh, desist from going in this direction because we covered uh, some of those major ones. But there are over 27 of them, and um, I just would like to maybe mention three others. Um, one of them is called PID, which is the Pelvic Inflammatory Disease. Uh, this is a disease that is caused by complications that develop out of being infected by STDs. Uh, so that uh, diseases like chlamydia and gonorrhea, if you've caught those disease, these diseases, uh, this can lead to um, PID or pelvic inflammatory uh, disease. Uh, really, it's an inflammation or abscesses in the fallopian tube or in the ovaries on the pelvis, pelvic area. And um, there's a lot of damage that can be done. One in seven women, for example, who have PID uh, become infertile. Uh, so it's a very serious matter. And it also leads to what is called ectopic pregnancies, pregnancies outside the womb, especially in the, in the tubes. After persons had three attacks of PID, 75% of them cannot conceive. Uh, so this is a very serious matter. So if you've had gonorrhea, if you've had chlamydia, Uh, chances are that you will also have PID. And I believe that part of the reason why there's so much infertility and women can't seem to have children, I really believe part of it is a result of uh, these STDs that are out there. Some of them, by the way, not even aware that they've got the problem because some of these diseases, there are no symptoms, Mm -hmm. especially uh, for some women. So you can be having the disease for a long period of time and not be aware that you have the disease, and by the time you catch it and you try to begin to deal with it, then it's so late that you'll find that you can't get pregnant. And then um, you think sometimes it's your husband's sperm conch, but it's not a sperm conch. It could very well be that you're infected by a disease that is affecting you and uh, destroying your fertility. Pastor, how would you respond to the listener who says, you're just trying to promote abstinence by creating fear and anxiety about these STDs? Well, fear is a legitimate uh, emotion. I want to say this. Uh, we are told that Noah was moved by fear and he built the ark. There's nothing wrong in using fear. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I think perhaps the best way of, of getting young people to pay attention is to really create the, the atmosphere of fear. fear, fear. 
Uh, I mentioned last time, for example, that the uh, Magic Johnson situation, I think that is a, that is really been detrimental to young people to see a person who've had AIDS for so long and yet he seemed to be smiling and there's no problems. I think that conveys to the young person there's nothing to worry about you know we can take medication, it'll take care of itself. When in truth and fact we don't see the other side of his life, the amount of medication he has to take, the side effects it has. So I think that we need to you know it's like some of these smoking ads that I used to see you, you know um, you see on the box the Surgeon General said it's not good for your health but you know what they've come out now with some very rabid um, um, ads mm-hmm. uh, a woman talking and her throat is gone and she's talking to a voice box uh, and I think that has really created tremendous fear in people so that you find that people are really uh, substantially a lot of people are moving away from cigarettes not that everybody is doing that same thing with um, I think if we had some graphic displays of the the, the results of AIDS and the, the the how to become emaciated and the kind of complications, I think young people are more reluctant to stay away from sex. But the media loves sex. Let's put it that way. Everything that we sell is about sex. So to 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 try to discourage sex really is to destroy industries, and that is why they promote it. But I think there are ways and means. There's nothing wrong in using fear. And if I can use fear to cause somebody to think twice or three times, I would use it because it's not fear-mongering in the sense that the facts are not there. These are actual facts. These are not uh, speculative things. Or these are not mythology I'm dealing with. This is something that actually happens. So if you can use that to encourage young people to remain pure and absent, um, believe me, I will use it again and again and again. But because it needs to be told that these are the dangers out there. I mean, you're like, when you sleep wrong with anybody, you've got 27 of these that are staring you in the face. And at the level of immorality we have in the world and in the Caribbean, uh, and you know, the average guy, the average girl, I mentioned, we go to the altar, she's been through f- four or five people, the guy's been through six or seven people. Imagine what that means within our culture. And every person you've ever slept with, you've slept with that person and every other person that person slept with. So if a person slept with seven people or six people, you've actually slept with eight people, seven plus six. If those people had diseases, it means that you will, you're going to get them. There's no question about that. Now, that is fearful. And it might take the the pleasure out of uh, the pursuit of, of sex. But if we remain pure, if we remain and do what God tells us to do, we actually lead to better successful living and uh, ho- hopefully a long life and uh, a happy marriage. But if I use a condom, I'm okay and I'm safe? That's a myth again. I think we all know that. Number one, uh, nobody knows when it's being manufactured, What the if it has a, a, a fine hole. And then some of these diseases are so micro, um, very, very, very small that can actually pass through, even the latex type of it. Mm-hmm. No doctor will ever guarantee you 100% if you use a condom that you wouldn't even get pregnant. People use condoms all the time and still get pregnant. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a means of uh, reducing the danger. But to suggest that it ever eliminates it altogether is just complete false. And any doctor will tell you that. Do I remember you mentioning last week that 20 of the 27 are not protected by the use of a condom? Right. No, using a condom does not guarantee you that you can be protected from them. Right. And uh, that's the... You know, it sounds so rosy. Uh, today you hear what people see, you go into the, the store and you see all these um, these condoms, Rough Rider and all this type of thing. You know, the young people are watching that kind of stuff. They think that they're studs. And they're not really being told the truth about the danger that is there. And that's why I, I'm a little bit 
disappointed sometimes with the medical profession of not really addressing these issues forthrightly. I think that they have a moral responsibility to talk on these matters. And because they make that failure, I think that we have to fill in that void that is there. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I trust you're having a good Tuesday evening. The time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.43. Broadcasting from the island of Antigua. The name of the program is That's Truth. It's a live interactive call-in program, and we would love for you to call in on the topic we're discussing, which is abstinence, or if you have a question about another topic or a concern, give us a call. The phone number is one 268 462 7420. I'll give that to you again as you get your phone unlocked or get a pen and paper out. Call and be put live on the air. 1-268-462-7420. Or if you'd rather WhatsApp or text, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. WhatsApp or text 268 782 Five, four. Thank you for joining us on the program this evening, and we trust that you can stay with us throughout the entirety of the broadcast. Pastor, you were mentioning PID. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, the only other thing I would add to PID is that um, the cure, you use antibiotics, um, but in severe cases, um, you need surgery uh, as a result of infertility. So mm. it, it, it can be very, very severe. Uh, another one. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I want to talk about the other one that I was trained to. I know we, we, we are all familiar with this one. When I was a boy, they used to call it the clap. <laughs> this is gonorrhea. Uh, this infects both the men and, and male and female, and the, it infects the genitals, the rectum, and the throat. You can have mm-hmm. gonorrhea in the throat. That's why when people talk, get involved in oral sex, a lot of these diseases can actually be in the throat itself. Mm-hmm. Um it's a very common infection of people between 15 and 24, and it is normally spread through some form of sexual activity, whether it be anal, oral, or, or vaginal. Uh, a pregnant woman, if she has it, can actually give it to her newborn child. So it's not just affecting the individual, it also has repercussions for the offspring. Uh, as far as symptoms are concerned, some men have no symptoms at all. So a man can have gonorrhea, and he don't even know he has it. And he can be spreading it all through society without even knowing he has a disease. However, if it does show symptoms in the men, the normie would know it because of a burning sensation when you're urinating. There's also a yellow, white, or greenish discharge at the private penis. And then there's painful swelling of the testicles. Those are the signs if it does occur within the male. As far as a woman is concerned, and by the way, most women do not have any symptoms whatsoever. Hmm. So you can have a man that doesn't have any symptoms, give a woman who doesn't have any symptoms, he is playing the field, and she is playing the field already and spreading this disease all over because there's no real symptoms uh, for her. Um, if she does have symptoms, sometimes they're so mild that she mistakes them as a bladder or vaginal infection, but in actual fact, it is gonorrhea. Those symptoms for women, if there is shown, is painful or burning sensation when urinating, uh, increased vaginal discharge, or vaginal bleeding between her periods. Uh, when you have rectal infection with uh, gonorrhea, 
the symptoms are you get a discharge, you have your anus is, is, is itching, you have soreness, you have bleeding, and there's painful bowel movements. That is also a symptom if you have uh, gonorrhea. Uh, it would be interesting if you're going to do a test to do that. Uh, normally, you can take a urine test, and out of that urine test, they can decide, discover if you've got gonorrhea or not. Sometimes they use a swab, and that swab can be used in your throat or your anus or whatever part of you that, that, that is infected. Now, this can be cured. The problem is that the medication, uh, even though it can stop the gonorrhea, it does not undo the permanent damage that was caused before you started treating it. What kind of damage would that be? Well, there are lots of things that can happen, several consequences of that. For women, for example, PID. Okay. Uh, that, that for sure is, is there. Um, then there's formation of scars uh, within the fallopian tubes that prevent her from getting pregnant as well. Then sometimes there's ectopic pregnancy where you get um, outside the womb, you become pregnant and, and in the fallopian tubes. Um, then you can get long-term abdominal pain. Uh, you can get infertility and inability to become pregnant. You also increase the chances, by the way, of catching HIV if you are having sexual relations with a person who has HIV. The fact that you have gonorrhea increases that chance that you would actually get the infection. Mm. Babies that can be born blind, you can end it with back pain, arthritis, and sterility. That's quite a list of medical um, things that can happen to a person who's engaged in gonorrhea. In my name as a boy, I always hear the guys talk, they had a clap. To them, it was nothing. And you would never get the impression that were there any serious repercussions. The more you begin to investigate this disease and discover what are the, the effects of it and the consequences, the more people need to be aware of it. And it's not just an uh, insignificant infection. It has serious repercussions. So I think that um, that's why I wanted to come back to, to this kind of a thing, because everybody knows about gonorrhea. But I don't think many people are aware that a person can have the disease without even knowing it, both the female and the, and the male, until late years later. Then you begin to f feel the side effects, and maybe you go for tests, and then to discover you've had the disease several years. Pastor, do you believe the Bible is applicable to every area of the life of our lives? I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Does the Bible warn about these type of diseases? Well, in the in the book of Leviticus, when the Lord was um, sending the Jews into to take over Canaan, and the Lord had told them really to do a, a kind of a purge, a moral purge, I uh, remind you again that in Genesis, we're told that they were given 430 years uh, to repent. Yeah. We're told that the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet right. Uh, but... The Lord made it very, very clear to the Jews that they were not to do certain things and not engage in certain secular activities. And he warns them that the diseases uh, that these nations had as a result of these kind of immoral practices, none of these diseases will come upon you. So clearly God intended to preserve and protect his people from these kind of diseases because sexual activity, uh, they are... Uh, there's a correlation between sexual activity and diseases. The doctors will tell you that. If we stay away from immorality, we will not catch these diseases, and God intended to preserve his people. So the restrictions in God's word is not, God is not a killjoy with a big bat knocking people on the head with a baseball saying, cut it out, you know, have pleasure. But God designed pleasure, uh, sexual pleasure, to be within the context of marriage, and very obviously is for our protection and for the well-being of our happiness. 
you are referencing that if we avoid immorality, the spread of disease is less likely. But what about if you weren't saved until after uh, you had been involved in these immoral practices? What do you suggest when you are providing premarital counseling? How do you guard against the spread of disease? Well, I I would be very upfront with people, um, depending on how private it, the conversation is, and depending on the whether or not I can, this confidence can be maintained. But uh, I would not be adverse if I was counseling and I had become infected at some point in my life before I became a Christian. And if it had some serious repercussions for me, I certainly would share it with that person uh, because people want reality, they want truth, they want something they can really relate to. And um, I think if there's a person who's been through something of this nature and it can be shared in confidence without it being spread, uh, I mean, that's a judgment call. Let me just say it's a judgment call. But I think it's useful. Uh, Or if you know of a friend uh, that might maybe be more useful. You know of an actual person that's been in, involved and this is the repercussions of what happened. I think sharing those stories with individuals during counseling um, are much more helpful than just giving theoretical facts and maybe just raw data. I think if you can illustrate that by somebody you know in your family or somebody outside or even yourself, I think it helps reinforce the need uh, for being very careful and very watchful. What about, do you suggest or require couples that are getting uh, counseling, premarital counseling from you to get tested for these diseases? And if one of them has one of these serious diseases, do you advise against them getting married? Or where's the biblical worldview on that? Well, in my view, um, I'm not the only person who can marry, but Mm -hmm. I have to have standards for marriage. And not only that, I just, I'm not in the game of marrying people to say I've chalked another marriage. I want to make sure that the marriage is successful, a marriage can last. Uh, so I'm not inclined for the sake of a person marrying a person because they want me to marry them. Um, if I discover that the couple have been sexual active before they met, okay, um, I insist that they get an AIDS test. Um, remember that the AIDS virus can be in your system for about 20 years, and some people live that long without even coming down with the HIV symptoms. So in my interest of longevity of the marriage and not to marry somebody and then five years later discover that if I had only just insisted, I don't want the burden of uh, a child being born into this world with AIDS because and I could have prevented it. Or I could, you know, or people get married and die within five years. Um, and the person who is left now almost have to become celibate or become almost like a, a widow or widower for life because when people know that the partner have died as a result of that, chances are they're not inclined to go into a dating relationship. So I want to, my main purpose is to protect uh, people. And by the way, what's love? What's real, genuine, authentic, agape love? Genuine agape love is about what is in the best interest of the object of one's love. It's willing to sacrifice self and sacrifice resources in the interest of the other person. So what if I were to do a test and I would discover that I had AIDS and I was going to marry somebody? Would I not want that person to know? Would I not want to protect that person? Is that not what genuine love is? So I am not the type of person that is going to um, perform a marriage unless, especially if I'm aware that the persons are being sexually active before, if you want me to marry them, I insist that you go ahead and you get a test and get that clarified. And by the way, it's always useful to do two tests. 
six months, do, and then six months do a second test because the first test might not prove positive. It might be um, in recidivism, the disease. So therefore, you need to take at least two tests. And I think it's in the interest of the person who wants to get married to do that. By the way, in the States, for example, before you get married, you've got to do blood tests. We don't even do it in the Caribbean. I even think with sickle cell, for example, if you have a trait of sickle cell and your wife has a sickle cell, chances are when the children have full-blown sickle cell. Do you want your child to live in misery with pain all of his life and perhaps have a premature death maybe in his 40s or 50s? What do you really want? So I think it's important to, to decide. And I can, I can love a person and in the interest of the welfare of that person and my future offspring say, listen, you know, I, I love you, but I, I just can't go through with this. I'm thinking of the consequences this will have on our family, on our children. I don't do that. And I think that people ought to be open uh, to investigate these type of things because <laughs> the more things are transparent, the more successful your marriage is going to be. I have a question from a listener in the Caribbean. A married couple where the wife does not want to have children, but the husband does, and so she uses a contraceptive, is that a sin? Well, I can't see why anybody want to get married without children. I'll mm-hmm. never marry any person who will tell me I don't want children. One of the purposes of, cho- uh, of marriage in the Bible is, is, is a clear companionship is one. And, but also the element of children. Children must be part, should be part of a marriage. And I would not perform a marriage. Anybody came to me and said, Pastor, I, we don't want children. Well, my recommendation, you'll get somebody that's married, but not me. Um, I think when you go into marriage and you enjoy uh, the pleasure that comes with marriage, God intended that children be part of your marriage. And I think if a woman is, um, a husband wants children, she doesn't, she's using a condom, and he's not even aware of it, of course, that is wrong, that is sinful. That's misleading him, and that is deception. And I would suggest to you that if he ever discovers it, it could lead to real turmoil in the marriage. Um, Don't go into a marriage without um, discussing these things with your partner. Not only, by the way, do you want children, discuss how many children you want. Um, I get forms sometimes, and I ask the question separately. I ask the wife to fill out and the husband to fill out. And I'm sometimes shocked to discover that they told them clearly uh, are not in par when it comes to how many children. That is That can lead to real strain within the marriage and problems within the marriage. Those are issues you need to discuss openly prior to putting a ring on anybody's finger. Pastor, if the purpose of marriage or one of the purposes of marriage is to have children, why does God allow infertility? Well, sometimes it's not God that allows it. Sometimes it's reckless lifestyle we live with all of these diseases. Nobody that gets infertility as a result of chlamydia or gonorrhea, you can put the blame on God. So that's, but that's not, the, not case. the case every time. No, it's not the case. All of all of this is a mystery. Um we know that in the Old Testament, for example, we find that uh, Sarah and um um Hannah. Hannah and also um Le- uh, Leah and Rachel. Rachel was, was barren. Uh, sometimes we don't know, but uh, it's, it's, we know that every child that is born, every life that is given by God, we know that. But as to why he withholds uh, a person from having uh, childbearing, this is all part of the mystery, and I, we can only speculate as far as that is concerned. However, God sometimes uh, allow a person to be barren uh, for a number of years, and then he uh, can open the womb. We see that in the case of Hannah. But notice that Hannah's opening of the womb was a result of what? Prayer. Prayer. Yeah. Prayer. Sometimes, uh, the other thing is this. I mean, I, I'm only speculating here, but 
You know, but Nathan, there are countless amount of children in the world waiting to be adopted. Hmm. You know, you think about that for just a moment. And very well, it could very <coughs> well be that God wants you to invest your life in caring for some of these kids who will have real parents. And so you've got to look at it on the positive side. Uh, the other thing is that sometimes um, the infertility can be rectified through some medical process. And again, um, doctors um, certainly is within the realm of the divine providence. The Apostle Paul traveled with Dr. Luke, ex- yeah. example. So there are times when we can use, uh, doctors can be used because there could be some physical impediment that was caused either during childbirth or something like that. Is that an endorsement for all uh medical procedures that doctors may recommend for bearing children like no, is in vitro fertilization no i would i would think if if it was possible let's suppose suppose a man's sperm count is low and uh, it's not that there's anything physically wrong with the wife nor with him per se other than sperm count if it is possible that the sperm could be implanted in other words you're dealing with two people husband and wife uh, I do not see that as something outside the realm of providence, the fact that God has given the, the doctors the skill. And remember that even though they put the sperm and the over together, it's still God that gives life. So if he decides yeah. either way, it ends up there. But I think we've got to appreciate the fact that God has given to people skills and abilities, and just that we use the, um, the doctors to treat illnesses, etc., etc. I see nothing wrong if a couple is having fertility problems and the doctor can kind of rectify that. I'm not for taking a sperm that belongs to somebody else and implanting it in, 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 a, in another woman that's not the person's wife. Uh, to my mind, that is totally unethical and wrong. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8 p.m. on Tuesday evening. The name of the program is That's Truth, and we're broadcasting on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8 o'clock, and thank you to the listener who sent in that question about... Uh, husband and wife and wanting children and the use of a contraceptive. Uh, Pastor, you were referencing that the, you wanted to discuss three more STDs tonight. You talked about PID. You talked about gonorrhea. What's the third one? The other one, very common, is one that we call, that is called syphilis. And um, this is a, a STD that is caused by a bacterium. And it has some serious health problems that can result if they're not treated. Um, the thing about uh, syphilis is that they've got different stages of syphilis. You've got primary syphilis, you've got secondary fi- uh, syphilis, you've got latent syphilis, and you've got tertiary uh, syphilis. Each one of these different stages uh, demonstrate different symptoms. So depending on the stage you're at, you'll see different systems. In terms of how this is acquired, uh, it's, it's spread uh, through contact with sores, the syphilis hmm. disease produces a sore, uh, either in the vaginal sore, anal sore, or uh, in the mouth as well. And um, these sores, if you come into contact with that, and can can lead uh, to you ha- contracting the disease. Also, a, a, a mother giving birth to a child can infect her baby if she has these sores in her private parts. The symptoms, uh, by the way, of the disease, um, the, the primary stage, um, well, what that happens is that 
you get sores um, around the original site of the infection, and these sores are normally um, found in the genital areas, around the anus, around the rectum, and these would last for about three to six weeks. Um, they also find them among, uh, around the mouth, and they are usually um, round, firm, and painless. Um, sometimes, uh, by the way, um, some people don't even aware the, the, the level of it, uh, may not be aware of it because it's not very painful, but it's actually a sore that is there. In the secondary stage, you develop a skin rash and you get uh, mucous uh, membrane lesions, which is uh, sores in the mouth, in the anus, and the vagina. And uh, you get swollen lymph nodes, uh, and also you get fever, you get sore throat, and you might have patches of your hair fall out. Mm. So it, you, it kind of, it's kind of a patchy hair. Um, sometimes these things are very mild, and... Uh, and people might not even pick them up, but when the rash comes, it normally is a brown reddish spot in the palms, in your hands, or in the bottom of your feet. So you can normally pick that up if you're at the second stage of this. When you come to the latent stage now, um, there are no symptoms. You move from stage one, stage two, so you can go on through that. Let's suppose a person had a mild form in the primary stage and didn't pick up the sores. Now he's gone into the second stage and he didn't even pick up the, the marks in his hands and his, and, his, and his feet. He's now in the latent stage where there are no more any symptoms at all. So you're living with this thing and you don't even know you've got it. Okay, and Then you come to the tertiary stage and this is where um, you have severe medical problems. You, it affects your heart, it affects your brain, it affects your organs, your blood vessels, and your nervous system. Mm. And this occurs, by the way, this latency between 10 and 30 years after you've had the disease. Wow. See? See? So it's a very, very, very serious one. If you don't treat it, um, you will spread, it can spread to your brain, your nervous system, and there's something called neurosyphilis. What that means is that you have severe headaches, you have problem coordinating your muscles, uh, it can lead to paralysis. Uh, there's numbness, and ultimately it can lead to dementia, where it can actually cause you to go crazy. And then there's ocular syphilis, where it changes your vision and it can cause blindness. So this is not a disease to be taken lightly. It's a very, very um, serious disease. Is there a cure? Yes, with the right kind of antibiotics. But the thing is this, even if it's treated at that stage, the damage is done. It can't undo the damage that you've had in those 30 or 30 years. So that gives you an idea how serious this problem really is, by the way. But um, I think that um, that is a very common disease, and I think that people are, may not be aware of the kind of effects you can have and the different stages of disease, but it is, is very serious. Pastor after you hearing you talk about all of these STDs and this was not all 27 that you had on your list these are just some of the the highlights if you want to use that word in that context it makes me very thankful for the the family that I grew up in and I remember having growing up uh, at times being mocked and ridiculed for living a a sheltered life but I'm very thankful for the fact that God allowed me to live a sheltered life. And I just want to encourage those who are out there who are parents. And even if you are a child and you 
sometimes feel the the effects of that sheltered life and you are maybe embarrassed or picked on because of it thank the lord that he has chosen to put you in an opportunity in a situation where you're protected from what's out there yeah, I, I would endorse that, and I—I I mean, I myself um, would thank the Lord that I mean, He He preserved me. May put it that way. Yeah, I didn't have a Christian home that was brought up in, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what really preserved me from a lot of this uh, immorality is the fact that I got saved fairly early, in about sixteen or seventeen. I don't know if I didn't get saved at that point in time. I don't think I would have had the moral fortitude, nor the courage, nor the discipline to not have gone down the road of immorality. So I thank God I got saved. It put brakes on my life, and it was a turning point in my life. And um, I, I, I really um, believe that the answer to um, sexual control and sexual purity is to surrender your sexuality to God. Mm-hmm. And if you get saved early, uh, I think it's a very good preservative. And I don't know of anybody who have been pre- pre- uh, preserved uh, sexually pure who regrets it when they go into marriage or later down the line. Uh, so I think that um, I can endorse what you're saying. I can see the appreciation you've got. It's, it's something about that when you're young, generally speaking, you don't have that perspective. Yeah. And uh, I wish sometimes you could put an old man's head on a young man's body, but that's virtually impossible. But we still need to instruct our kids and try to do the best we can. Um, all I can say is that, you know, it's a battle out there, a real, real battle, and I, 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 I'm not. I I'm sympathetic with the battle the young people are fighting, because everything is being thrown at them, including the sink, basically, to get them down this road. And as though they're missing out the greatest thing on planet Earth, and they're caught up in this this uh, this race and this derby. Everybody wants to win this to get in this derby, and I think it's a real tragedy. I appreciate that you brought the focus back to the fact that salvation is what is the protecting factor because uh, ultimately you can grow up in a very sheltered or a protected environment but if your heart is not seeking after God, yeah. the the heart of man is deceitful and wicked. Yeah, The person that comes to mind immediately is Joseph. Young lad, yeah. away from home in a pagan society. Uh, he has this his boss's wife is attracted to him but what preserved David uh, Joseph was the fact he said uh, how can I do this great wickedness in the sight of God he lives under the idea that God is seeing everything he's doing and having that consciousness of God's presence is what preserved him and I don't think there's any force more powerful even the the diseases we're talking about and the physical impact uh, to my mind, the greatest power in preserving people's in secular purity is the power of God and their faith and trust in Christ. And one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is uh, comes later when Joseph is in prison, mm-hmm. and it says, "And the Lord was with Joseph, and all that he did, the Lord made to prosper." And I truly believe Joseph wasn't perfect, but I truly believe that God chose that word all. Mm-hmm. He didn't say most. most. He said all mm-hmm. that he did. I mean, he was put in charge of the prisoners, and he was a prisoner himself in the prison. But just to see how God can take a situation that you may be going through something tonight or this week that it just seems rotten and unbearable, but God can take that and allow you to be a shining light. 
for him. Now, Pastor, I came across a number of people who really were ridiculing people who were teaching abstinence and saying it's irresponsible, it's foolish. They compared it to uh, living close to a river, but hiding the life jackets from your children, refusing to give your children swim lessons, and uh, saying you should never, ever go close to the river because you're guaranteed to catch these diseases. Is that a fair comparison when you're talking about abstinence from sex? Look, I, I am, you know, all these analogies that people are using are false because they're contrary to Scripture. God's Word is final on this matter, and uh, we have an infallible book. Uh, God knows that um, the warnings that are there, he, he, he would not expect us to do something that He will not enable us to do. If God calls for sexual purity, it's because sexual purity is possible. And it doesn't matter. I cannot think of any person put in a more provocative position than Joseph was as a young lad, but yet he perseveres. And what caused him to persevere and remain pure is his commitment to God, his faith in God, and living in the sight of God. If he could do that, now, you talk a woman who's actually pulling off your, your, your pants, basically, and uh, in the privacy of her home and stuff like that. You're not talking with somebody. And look at all the, the, the benefits she could, he could have had, blackmail mm-hmm. the boss and get the, all the goodies, et cetera, et cetera. And just pride. Uh, just pride. But, but again, it's the commitment and the, and the uh, faith and trust and the desire to please God and live an obedient life. So I don't buy all this crap that people talk about. They can say it as much as they want, but it's just crap because God is much wiser than any one of us. And if God said we should do it, it means he will be able us to do it. So we've talked about the STDs, and there's many more than what we had the time to go into detail about. But are there other physical reasons for practicing abstinence? Yeah, of course. There's several, and I just mentioned four quick ones. First, one of the other reasons for not is unwanted pregnancies. How many teenagers you know are ready to be a mom and a dad? They're not ready mentally, not ready emotionally, psychologically, not mainly financially. It becomes a burden to the household wherever you have an illegitimate birth. And it, it, it perpetuates the vicious cycle of poverty and immorality. Poverty and immorality are linked together. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it perpetuates this whole thing. Uh, for example, the other thing is that 80% of pregnant girls drop out of school. Wow. So if you drop out of school and you're pregnant, you don't have any education, and you're not even going to be able to help the baby when the baby begins to, to want a mom to help with, with uh, teaching the child. Uh, 70% of the pregnant teens go on state welfare. Uh, so you've got the welfare state, the government perpetually having to pour tons of dollars into maintaining people who live in moral lifestyles. And 60% of the girls who become pregnant, in two years they become pregnant again. So it's a vicious cycle. So the mere fact that it's not just the diseases, but the, the idea of unwanted pregnancies. I do not know of any teenage girl who's really prepared uh, to really handle a child. And I don't think a child can be brought up in that kind of a setting that you're going to produce useful students or, or citizens in the future. You're raising delinquents and you're la- 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 raising people who are going to give a lot of trouble to the state in the future with crime and drugs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The other, other thing, uh, Nathan, is, is, is abortion. If you don't engage in sexual immorality, chances are you're not be tempted to commit abortion. But what's abortion? Abortion is not getting rid of some blob in a child. It's murder. It's murder. It's, it's, it's actually raw, raw murder. It's the murder of innocence because of either inconvenience or embarrassment. 
And uh, so what you're doing now, you're compounding sin by adding an either greater sin to it because you're trying to do some kind of a, a cover-up. Cover and the reckless slaughter of the innocent children will bring the judgment of God and the curse of God in any country and in any nation. You read the book of the Old Testament, and one thing that God judged the nations for was the shedding of innocent blood. And I cannot perceive that a moral God who witnesses this atrocity can very long withhold his judgment on us because of the reckless way and the callous way in which we've allowed abortion. So I think the murder of children, and then the, the, the cancer of the cervix. Uh, it's a medical fact that the earlier a girl begins having sex, the higher her risk of developing, developing cervical cancer. That's a fact, a scientific fact. That's a medical fact. And then the other thing, of course, is the, the matter of infertility. Uh, these STDs uh, that create PID uh, cause infertility in many, many women. So it's not just about the, the, the fact you're going to get an STD, but it's also the fact that many people, many girls, can end up being infertile. So whether it be unwanted pregnancy or whether it be the murder of children through abortion or the increase in incidence of cervical cancer, the fact of infertility is a haunting um, problem that I think people need to be aware of. So I think those are four other good physical reasons why Besides the fact of the STDs, people should stay away from from um, engaging in, in sexual activity prior to marriage. From a social standpoint, would you agree with the statement that if a government is promoting immorality, poverty will likely increase? There can be no doubt about that. I mean, there can be no doubt about that. Um, look, you ever, if you were to ever take some good philosophical thinking and just think of what, what the world would have been if man had just followed God's directives. Every child had a mom and a father living in the home being taken care of. Now think about that for just a moment, the repercussions of that. If you were to think that one through and really ponder it and look at the repercussions in comparison to what we currently have, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever had we followed God's divine laws and his principles, we would be in a far better state economically, uh, socially, uh, physically, every aspect. I think the, the whole world would be different. So I think that um, it's the violating of those norms that eventually have consequences that God has warned us against. And today we're reaping, we've sown to the wind and reaping the whirlwind. Pastor, we have a couple of messages that have come from Antigua. One from a listener in Marble Hill, Antigua. Where do you go when you die, and there's a space between now and the coming of Christ? Where does the soul go? Well, it depends if you're a Christian or not. If you are a believer, the Bible says, absent from the body is present with the Lord. And that's why in the book of Thessalonians, it says that when the Lord returns, the dead in Christ, he, he, he brings his, his, his saints with him. Who are the saints? Those are the spirits of the believers who have died. They're coming back with him. Um, those that are dead will be made alive, and those that are present, they'll be transformed. So it, if you're a believer, absent from the body, you go to be with the Lord. That's where you are. Now, if you are not a Christian, uh, the Bible talks about the fact that we go to a place called Hades, and uh, that is a, 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 a intermediate stage between um, death now 
and the great white throne judgment where you're cast in the lake of fire. So a person that is not a believer, he doesn't go to be with the Lord. His body remains in the grave, but his soul and his spirit goes to be in Hades. The illustration of that, by the way, is in Luke chapter 16, where the Lord made a distinction between Abraham's bosom and, and Hades proper. And if you read uh, the book of Ephesians, it is said that God led captivity captive. And what that is believed to mean that when Christ, uh, and if you re- read Peter as well, it talks about Christ going into Hades and preaching to those who before had not believed or something like that. Um, but it's believed that when Christ died, he took all, and was raised, he took all the spirits that were in Hades, called Abraham's bosom, and took him to be with him. Uh, but that could only happen after the resurrection. It could not have happened before the resurrection. And that is why there's no intermediate state for the believer now. But before that, there was that place called Abraham's bosom. So if you're a Christian, uh, Paul tells us in the book of Corinthians, absent for the body present with the Lord. So we go directly to be with the Lord. If you are not a Christian, you go to that intermediate state called Hades, where the Bible says you are tormented. And the man said, I'm tormented in this flame and he required water. That's not a parable. Uh, And if it were a parable, a parable teaches truth. And what truth is that teaching? That for the unsafe person outside of Jesus Christ, there is a penalty of pain and anguish. However you want to describe that, but it clearly is not a place you want to go. And it's a literal place. It's a literal place. Pastor, we have a message that came from a listener in Antigua. Good evening. Pastor Murphy said it was unethical for another man's sperm to be placed into a woman in order for the couple to have kids. In Sarah and Abraham's situation, where Sarah was barren and gave Abraham her handmaid to bear children for her husband, I look at this as being similar to a couple having somebody else's fertilized egg placed inside of another woman, or for instance, a surrogate mother. I don't know that I find it unethical because of the example of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. What are your thoughts, Pastor? Well, we can't use Old Testament morality to stand it for New Testament truth. In other words, we, we can't do the practices you had in the Old Testament, the social customs back then. They don't apply today. Uh, we have a biblical standard, and that standard is given in Scripture. And remember that our Lord, in trying to bring us back to a standard of morality, took us back to Genesis. What was God's original intent? We must always look on this matter. What is God's original intent? God's original intent is always that a male and a female, a husband and a wife, come together and produce children. That's God's original intent. We don't violate that intent. And if we are suggesting a surrogate um, sperm be in place that doesn't belong to the, either the husband or the wife, we are violating that biblical principle that God's original intent was the husband and the wife produced a child. So I don't think you can use that parallel and I think we're making a big mistake if we take Old Testament morality and elevate the standard of New Testament uh, standards. The, we have a, remember that Revelation is progressive, and uh, we have ultimately in the Old in New Testament what God's ultimate design is in relation to what uh, we have uh, throughout Scripture. So if we want to know what is the standard of morality, we don't look to the Old Testament. We look to the New Testament, and in particular, we look to the teachings of Christ. And um, I can't find any warrant for suggesting that um, because Sarah did that, that it is legitimate today when we already got the original intent that God had when our Lord took us back to what what he intended, and that intended one man, one woman, husband and wife, producing children. That's God's original intent. I mean, if you wanted to take it to an extreme, uh, it, 
the repercussions of that decision are still being felt throughout the world, not just through the Middle East today. Well, well said. Uh, well said. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.22. Thank you to those of you who are sending in questions. We appreciate it, and we are here to answer your questions from a b- biblical worldview. You can call and be put live on the air, one 462 7420 The phone line is open and available for you. Or you can WhatsApp and call WhatsApp or text your message to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four. Yeah, I wanted to add to what you just said, Nathan, because it's vitally important. Everything in Scripture doesn't mean that God approved it. He tolerated certain things. He finds certain social customs in place uh, because God is dealing with man at his level of development, and uh, God does not impose. Um, everything on all of humanity. For example, he selected his people and imposed the, the Ten Commandments. But the truth of the matter is, everything that you find in the, in the Bible doesn't mean that God endorses it. You've got to look to what is God's intent, what is God's will. This goes to such thing as the social custom of the um, that you just mentioned. You're given a surrogate um, person to your husband to raise up children. Mm-hmm. That was a social custom back then. It was tolerated by God. Polygamy, for example, is not biblical. It's not biblical because it's not God's original intent. But again, God tolerated it. You've got certain Old Testament patriarchs that had more than one wife. It doesn't mean that God sanctioned it. It was a custom, and he just tolerated it because of the stage of development man was at spiritually. But when you come to the New Testament, there's no doubt in your mind that polygamy is, is, is not God's will. Uh, divorce, for example, clearly God something God tolerated, not that God's intended uh, that divorce become a normal practice. And you know that from the book of Malachi, which said God hates divorce. So I think that people need to be aware that everything you find in Scripture, it doesn't mean that it's sanctioned by God. It means that God has tolerated it at that stage. But as he gave further revelation, more revelation, his will became very, very clear. So we don't go back to old customs. We look to what's the the revelation that God has given us in all its fullness. Pastor, are there reasons outside of the physical for practicing abstinence? Yeah, I think so. Um, I believe that there are a lot of um, non-physical reasons. Uh, for example, there are a lot of emotional uh, um, f- factors that I think that, for example, take guilt. Uh, your soul's automatic warning system is your conscience. And the moral law is written in your heart. So when you go contrary to the moral law and you get involved in immorality, you're going to live with a, a guilty conscience. And your guilt can affect you in so many different ways. You read the, you read the book of Psalms. Uh, David talked about his bones and his, and his, and, um, his uh, wilting and, and drying up. It means it can affect you physically. You've got what's called psychosomatic it, uh, somatic illness, uh, it can affect you mentally and emotionally. It can also affect you psychologically. So the idea of guilt... Well, that's one of the greatest burdens you can ever carry if you if you have guilt and uh, that can really affect you. Then the, the emotional bondage that is created between two sexual partners is almost like you become enslaved to it. It's hard to break that kind of a bondage. So it's not just a physical thing. There's a part of you that is actually surrendered uh, in sexual activity and there's something more than physical so you become, uh, people talk about the chemistry of people become so enmeshed that they find difficulty. You know, I've, I've dealt with people already that I can't understand why they stay in the relationship. There's nothing there. Sometimes there's physical abuse, sometimes there's verbal abuse, uh, emotional abuse, and you, you, you look at the situation, but why do you stay in that situation? Because they're in bondage. 
there's a sexual bondage that takes place there. And then, of course, there's a matter of uh, shame and embarrassment. Uh, you have to live. I wonder sometimes when uh, people have been involved with other partners and uh, years later to see them or something, I, I wonder when they look at them. I really wonder what's the thought that goes in there. I mean, I can imagine, you must feel some kind of shame and embarrassment. Imagine living with that. I mean, that's an emotional situation. And then uh, sometimes this feeling of anger and rejection because you're jilted. You've been taken for a ride, you have your joy ride, and now the person rejects you for somebody else who maybe give them even more pleasure, more joy. When that happens to you, you can develop anger that you somehow use and then abandon. And then resentment, uh, feeling that you were forced into violating your standard. You had certain standards, but somehow you were pushed into it. As you look back on that, you can develop tremendous resentment. And then, of course, um, it might destroy the possibility of any solid, permanent future relationship because of the disgust and hurt and the mistrust that you've developed. Um, you find it very hard to trust anybody, and so you find it difficult to have a, a relationship that lasts. By the way, a guy called Dr. David Weiss did a study about uh, people who um, their first sexual encounter outside of marriage and what were the results. The results were that one-third of those who got involved in sexual activity before marriage, it was negative, it was painful and brought very little pleasure. Hmm. And that scarred, from that moment, it scarred every other relationship after that. One-third. One-third. One-third were mixed and what I mean by that is uh, there were a mix of pleasure and guilt. And one-third felt they were exploited. So, so you look at two-thirds of, of that, and those people are having negative, it's had a negative impact. Now imagine if that were true, that initial experience could color uh, the balance of your life, and it does not help to build a positive and satisfactory relationship in the future. So it can affect you in the future. Pastor, based on things that we've discussed over the last two weeks in the program tonight, there is no doubt that our society is very, very loose. There's a lot of promiscuity. What factors would you say are contributing to that attitude in society? Uh, there are several things I would uh, mention um, generally speaking. One is the general lack of moral standards in society. The general, not just sexual standards, but the general lack of moral standards when it comes to honesty and integrity. Um, this is true in the school, in the home, in the church, in government, and the general society. So once you have that general lack of moral standards, it's only a matter of time before that goes over into the sexuality of individuals. The other thing I think is, <clears throat> another factor I think, environmental factor, is the misinformation about sex. Sometimes um, it is seen as synonymous with love, and the two are not synonymous. And many times it is discussed without any moral overtones, as though it's not related to morality. And uh, it is more seen as a recreational experience than it is a deep, satisfying, intimate, personal relationship that's designed to be exclusive. And I think that in itself, that kind of misinformation that you can just have sex as a kind of recreational thing you just enjoy. It's, over. it's, not, it's not that way. It's, it's a complete 
misrepresentation of the facts. But again, because it is done this way on television and everyday other means, I think young people are not totally informed and they're misinformed. The other thing is broken homes is another big factor. The attitude and moral standards that are formed are formed at a very early age in developing the home. But the home is a mess. It is broken. It's dysfunctional. And therefore, the parental mistakes that were made are now repeating in the life of the child. And uh, it, it doesn't help to have that. Another thing I would think, well, Nathan, is peer pressure. Uh, uh, everybody wants to be, uh, don't want to be left out in this sexual derby. And uh, the, 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 the pressure is placed uh, by your peers to adjust to their their standards. And if their standards are, the group standards is some kind of sexual activity, you're pressured to surrender to that. Um, and then I think another one would be the media. And this is a big one. I think there's no other institution that stokes the fire of lust and inflames the passions of young people than the media. And it does that through the movies, it does that through television, it does that through music and the lyrics and the beat of the music. I don't even ever, I mean, sometimes I don't even understand what they're singing these days, but if you were to get a readout of some of the words that are being expressed, they are so vulgar that you would almost wonder how can anybody tolerate even yeah. that coming on the air. Uh, but then in a democracy where people avoid censorship, uh, but the the words, the lyrics, the beat of the music, uh, there's sensual music, there's no question about that, and uh, there's music that's designed to cause you to gyrate, to move your body, all of that is really conducive. And then advertising is another one. And um, the other thing I would say to you is the porn industry, a multi-billion dollar industry that is ubiquitous all over the place. Uh, your cell phone, your computer, iPad, books, magazines, uh, billboards, uh, it seems as though the goal is to addictify, if there's another word like that, people at a very early age. Because remember that this industry, to perpetuate itself, has got to capture you, a young audience. So the pornography is geared to young ages, 8, 9, 10. Before it used to be adults, it used to be teenagers, now it's much more narrow. Because once you get trapped there, it means they have an industry for life. But the pornography industry is another big one. Another thing I think that is conducive to this um, breakdown is the use of alcohol and drugs. Wherever you have the um, prevalent use of alcohol and drugs, you have the breakdown of immorality and you have a lot of sexual activity uh, because it reduces the inhibitions that you would normally have once you're under the influence of these kind of uh, drugs. Here's another one I think that's very... The easy access of birth control and condoms. The mm -hmm. fact that you can get pills and IUDs and diaphragms, et cetera, et cetera, it creates uh, an environment where the person had the illusion of protection, and this leads to experimentation and regular engagement in sex. Um, and I think that those nine things, uh, I think, in terms of our, our environment, uh, really foster this um, immoral lifestyle that we have and we see all around us. You mentioned early on in that description or that list that love and sex are not synonyms. Can you expound on that some? Yeah, uh, look, if you, because in the English language we only got one word for love. Uh, someone, some people generally think that, um, you know, when I give sex, 
it's because I love the person or the person wants sex because they love me. <laughs> but again, if you were to study the Greek language for just a moment, uh, they, they, it's very, very clear that they distinguish that they're different types of, of, of love. For example, there are three different words. There's the word phileo, which means a friendship type of love. And I think we all understand we can be friends and we can love our friends. There's also what is called erotic love, or the word eros. This has to do with physical love. Uh, again, uh, phileo is not eros. And then there's the other word that we use for the Christians, agape love, which is love that looks after the, the, the best interests of the individual. So we just got one word, but the Greek had different words. Now, phileo love and eros and agape are all part of marriage love. See, because there's physical love between a husband and a wife. There's uh, friendship between a husband and a wife. There's also uh, self-sacrificing concern for the welfare of the other person. So that is marital love. But erotic love can be there without any kind of marital love. And the point is that eros belongs to marriage. And I think sometimes the confusion of, of young people is that they're misled into thinking that I, if I love a person, I must somehow uh, give in to sex. Uh, that is a misunderstanding and uh, misinterpretation, and I would say that you're being led down a track that's going to lead you to a lot of pain and, and uh, hurt in the future. Would you say that there's any other reasons or factors that cause such a high teenage sexual prevalence? Well, the other thing, if we can't get away from the idea of curiosity and experimentation, I mean, there's no doubt about that. Every every young person, when he reaches puberty, uh, and especially depending on the environment in which he was brought up in, every person, every young person, generally speaking, wants to know what this thing is. Because it's blown up on the television as though it's the greatest thing on planet Earth. And that just whets the appetite, I think, of young people by making them curious. And they just, they, they, let me put it this way, they just want to find out what this thing is all about. And that curiosity, I think, propels them down this downward path. And that, that uh, they also um, become turbocharged because of all these other things that are bombarding them at the same time that encourage them to go in that direction. And some of that is taking place even in the the primary schools, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. just the the prevalence of language or attitude or I won't go into details, but it's, yeah, it's you could. Uh, it, it would be interesting to, for, for some people sometimes to stay behind a window and watch um, primary school students. Uh, watch what they're talking about, watch how they're acting, and you'll be surprised to know that the language that is, uh, and the, the, even the physical uh, things that they say and do sometimes is very, very clear that this is common knowledge. The, the other thing, Nathan, is that in a lot of our homes, children have access to cable television, and sometimes parents are out, the children come home, they have access to cable te television. Now, what you would discover if you're here in Antigua that you can buy cable television and you can exclude all all adult channels. But let me tell you what they do, and this is something the government needs to look into and maybe bring a big charge against them. They deliberately, at uh, if you pass 11 o'clock, I don't know what night it is, but if you were to go into the channels, you would be shocked to see what scenes or what thing that they give. But it's a deliberate ploy. You did not pay for it but they give it to you hoping that you would get hooked on it. It's the most unethical thing I think that happens, and I think that the government needs to look into this and people who are into any form of censorship, but I think there should be a penalty for people doing that kind of stuff. And uh, you've got 
kids, for example, maybe you're going to sleep or something, a kid gets up, you go on the television set or whatever it is, or he's watching a late NBA game, and you fall asleep, but he doesn't fall asleep. You think of the danger of that in a home, but that had deliberate ploy of these cable companies, and I think it is something that needs to be looked at. It's reprehensible. Pastor, what are some preventative measures? You've referenced that... Uh, abstinence is doable. It is a solution to the problem, even in this day and age. What are some preventative measures that young people can take in order to avoid the immorality? Well, let me make a few suggestions to those who might be listening. Um, I'm going to interrupt you real sure. quick. We have a caller on the line from Nevis. We'll get back to that question. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Yes, good evening. Good evening, sir. Yes, I would like to address three passages of scripture from the book of Revelation. Speaking about the New Jerusalem, what I want to know is the New Jerusalem, the city, and heaven identical? Okay. Well, my understanding of the book of Revelation is that when the eternal state begins, and uh, that comes after Revelation chapter 20. You've got the New Jerusalem descending from heaven. And um, it's, it seems to be suspended above the, the new earth and the new heaven. And, it, and that, seems to be, that seems to be the place where believers are going to dwell uh, in that celestial city. I also believe that we will have access to planet earth because there's no use. I can't see any reason why you would have to create a new heaven and new earth and it serves no purpose. So I think there should be some kind of commuting between the heavenly city of Jerusalem and uh, planet Earth. So I think that uh, that, in my, in my view, is what, what heaven is going to be like. Now, in, in Revelation chapter 2, uh, chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, And he that overcometh shall I make a pillar in the in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out uh-huh. and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God uh-huh. which is New Jerusalem right which cometh down from heaven out of heaven yes from my God and it, I will write upon him my new name. It, yes. Now he says the city would come out of heaven. Yeah, well, well, you know, look, when you talk about heaven, you know, we are surrounded by the atmosphere, then you've got the second heaven, then you've got the third heaven. Uh, so it's actually coming down from where God dwells, the third heaven, and it's coming down uh, to be suspended above planet Earth, basically, uh, the new heaven and the new Earth. Because the, the city, uh, we're told in the book of Revelation, given the dimensions of it, um, we're told that we will dwell with him and the land will be the light of the, of the city, etc., etc. So the idea of um, heaven, from a biblical perspective, what we, what's going to come in the eternal future, is that this city, and you know what Jesus said in, in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and my Father's house are many mansions. And I think that's what he's talking about. The, the celestial city is going to come down, suspended above planet Earth. Believers will dwell there, but I also believe that believers will have access to, to, the, to the new heaven and new earth. Did that answer your question? Okay. Okay, have a good night. 
Thank, Thank you. you very much for your call. We appreciate you listening from Nevis. Continue to listen and continue to encourage others to tune into the program also. Pastor, uh, what preventative measures can young people use to avoid the immoral lifestyle? Well, several things I would suggest to uh, young people is that um, one is it would be try to set some standards before you start to date. Um, if you don't have some kind of a process in place or some kind of rules and regulations in, in your dating, um, it's going to be too late once you start going down a certain trail. So you have to, when you've still got the light and the darkness doesn't come in, you know, you don't you don't put on your socks when the light is out. You try to put on your socks when the light is on. And uh, <laughs> and I, I'm just using the illustration there, but you need to draw some very clear lines that you will not cross when you're going to date and, and stick to those limits that you, you set. But if you don't have any lines, you don't have any, any limits, uh, I'm not too sure where you'll be able to stop. So it's wise to, to decide that you're going to set certain standards before. For example... You should already make up in your mind that you will avoid certain places and being put in positions of temptation. Uh, for example, uh, you might decide that you're not going to be in a car alone parked by some street or some alley or some some somewhere. That's a rule. You're not just not going to do it. Never going to happen. Uh, because if that happens, chances are... Um, it happened again and again until you, it wears you down and then you're going to engage in some activity. So those are some things you need to do. Um, um, the idea that you will never be alone in a dark area. May I suggest to you that you're never alone in a dark area, you're never going to commit immorality. But because people love darkness and they share away from the light, uh, if you make up, when I go dating, I am going to be in a place where the the, the, the people are public so I am not going to be any secret uh, hotel somewhere secret room somewhere some private place somewhere uh, I'm going to be a place where I can be seen in public and where there's a lot of light uh, simple things like that set some kind of standards and I think it would help you the other thing is try to be accountable uh, be accountable to somebody somebody you trust somebody who can uh, you say, listen, I want you to hold me accountable in my dating life. Ch uh, check, check, check me up, please. Call me, find out what, 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 what I'm doing, etc., etc. Uh, this might be a trusted friend. If you've got a good parent that uh, you have a very good relationship with, it might be a parent, but somebody that will hold you accountable, and uh, maybe a youth pastor, uh, maybe an older person that is not your parents, but you trust that person and you have confidence in that person. Let them hold you accountable for your dating conduct and ask you questions when you go on dates, etc., etc. So have a person, your accountability partner. The other thing is keep your mind pure. Keep your mind pure. Um, our actions are a product of our thinking. Behind every evil act is a process of evil thinking. And the book of Proverbs warns you, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And the book of Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, tells you that you must bring every thought into captivity to obedience to Christ. That means to try to control your thought life. And one of the things that you need to do as a young person, if you're going to avoid going down the road of sexual immorality, is this matter of purity of mind, which means you've got to avoid watching pornography, avoid a lot of these soap operas that you see that are there, this guy cheating on this person, and avoid that. Are you saying that's pornography? It's a form of pornography in the sense that um, a lot of these, um, I can't say a lot of them because I don't see them, <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
<laughs> I know that there are people who watch these things, and of course, you've got love scenes, you've got bed scenes, all of that is pornography. So it leaves it to the imagination to develop. Of it. course, of course. And then uh, romantic novels, um, that could carry you down the wrong track. Salacious magazines that you wouldn't want to look in the center page. Um, avoid blue movies. Uh, avoid certain venues like carnival, the nakedness on carnival and the misbehavior of the females on the street is just shameful. And that's why uh, Philippians chapter 4 tells us uh, that we are to think within certain parameters what is good, which is uh, honest, good report, uh, which is excellent, whatever it is. You find that seven things there we're told in the book of Philippians chapter 4. So I would think if you're going to prevent yourself from going down the immoral road, you've got to have to keep your mind pure because it's the thoughts that are placed in your mind that moves you to action and misbehavior. Another thing I would suggest is dress in a manner that reflects your biblical standards of modesty, especially when you're going on a date. Uh, Don't dress to be sexy, to tease and to tempt the person that you're going with. Um, This is a moral uh, wrong that you're committing, and it could lead uh, to things that should not happen. Uh, Paul says in Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, and to dress discreetly. So avoid tight pants. Avoid revealing sweaters. Avoid a low neckline that uh, your bust protruding. Avoid uh, a blouse that raises above your navel, that shows your navel. Watch your sleeveless blouse, blouses that you wear. Any clothing that exposes your thighs, uh, try to avoid those kind of things when you're dating. And the same thing goes for men. Uh, the kind of shirt you wear and you know, button it halfway down to your, your belly button, uh, that's not proper for a decent young man to do that. But I'm saying to you, uh, watch how you dress when you go on your dates. Another thing I would say is to choose your companions very, very, very carefully, people that you're going to date, uh, people that have the same values that you have, Um, Many times people are searching to be accepted and want approval, and regrettably, um, the kind of approval that they seek revolves around lowering your values. I am told that between uh, 30 to 40 percent of all teens uh, will engage in some kind of um, pressure to engage in some kind of sexual activity. So you've got to be very watchful about that. I'm surprised it's that low. Yeah, well, it's probably higher uh, for the statistics I got. I'm using... um, Josh McDowell's book on why wait and I don't have the most recent volume so probably it's much higher than that Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 5 verse 9 Paul says I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with any immoral person that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9 so you've got to be very careful the people that you select the book of Proverbs warns that if sinners entice you, consent you not. So be watchful with those people that you, you, you associate with. We have a caller calling from Nevis. Go ahead with your question, please. Yes. I, I don't remember the chapter and the verse, but in Romans, doesn't it say that we must make no provision for the flesh. Yeah, you're correct. To fulfill the last thereof. Yes, sir. You're very right about that. Um, that's a biblical verse. It's right in the book of Romans. And it also says, uh, um, put you on the Lord Jesus. That's what the text says. I think that was the same text, by the way, that um, uh, Augustine uh, came to faith. 
um, make no provision for the flesh and put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're right about that. We should not create an environment or be an environment that is conducive to us lowering our standards so that we engage in morality and um, we must not make provision for the flesh. I'm uh, very thankful that you brought that verse to the attention of the audience. Yes, thank you for calling with that verse. The, as he was sharing that, uh, James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 came to mind. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Correct. And uh, an example of not making provision for the flesh is the illustration. I mean, chances are, if you are not in the seat, this uh, the back seat of a car in a some place, uh, you know, sitting down talking, chances are you're going to get into trouble. So that's making provision for the flesh. Uh, being in a home by yourself, for example. Uh, going to your parents' home or going to your boyfriend's home and uh, nobody else is there, you've got the key. You're just setting yourself for downfall. One needs to be very, very... Carrying condoms in your in your, in your, in your pocket, uh, just in case. Uh, that is conducive. That's putting provision for the flesh. So I think you're very right about that. As a Christian parent, and you're trying to raise your children, your young people for the Lord, and... It's it's a fact that there are many, many people who go the immoral path. Uh, is it wise to introduce your young people to condoms just in case something happens? Or what's the biblical perspective on that, Pastor? I don't think it's helpful. Um, I have never done it, and I wouldn't recommend that parents do it. Ex- have high expectations for your children. Not they'll disappoint you. Don't somewhat disappoint you. There's no question about that. But you don't. You can't have a child to aim f- for the highest if you lower the standard. And I think the mere suggestion that you are going to introduce them to condoms, um, there is a reservation in their mind that. Uh, uh, you know, you you are tempting your child, and it's very saying to to your child. You know, well, you know, in case, and uh, you're given a loophole for him to actually experiment and maybe even have second thoughts. Let him know that you don't expect it. Uh, you expect the highest moral standards from him or her. And um, but the idea of suggesting that you introduce him to condoms just in case, I think that that's a moral letdown. And I don't think it really, really establishes the same. It's like you're telling a child, you aim at 50 when you should aim at 100. Mm. I think that's a big mistake, and I don't, I don't recommend that at all. You were going through a list of uh, preventative measures. Yeah, the other thing is don't, go st- um, don't be in a hurry to go steady. Uh, I think that people need to be aware of that because um, the more you go steady, the more familiar you become and the deeper involved you become uh, with that person. And the, the truth of the matter is that uh, the fact that you're going steady uh, normally would lead to some kind of intimacy long before you're reg- ready for it. So don't don't jump into a steady relationship. Um, um, re- research reveals that teens who go steady for more than six months almost always become sexually intimate. Hmm. I will only repeat that. Research shows that teens who go steady for more than six months usually almost certain to get involved in uh, sexual intimacy. And that should be a warning uh, to people who, who are listening. Um, I would recommend that you, you get to know uh, 
you know, do double dating, do group dating, get to know as, as several people, and don't don't be too tied down too soon, uh, and don't restrict your selectivity too soon, because there may be people who are, are looking for a, a real nice person, and they just see you so tied down so quickly that uh, they don't even wouldn't even consider dating you because you're already taken. I think you can be creating some problems for yourself there. Uh, as a person, but don't go steady too soon. Um, try to develop a close relationship with your family and your friends and, and try to find acceptance uh, uh, and the physical affection that you need within your family circle. I know touching is so important, and this is where within your family and your friends you can get innocent hugs, you can get pats on your back, you can get warm handshakes, uh, handshakes as well. Uh, it's a myth that all affection is sexual. Uh, affection can be displayed in many other ways, and I think if you had a close relationship with your family, it could help that. Uh, the other thing is to pour your energy into something that's worthwhile, a cause that is worthwhile, that you can burn up that um, that sexual uh, energy that you've got. Um, uh, maybe concentrate on uh, a lonely old person, invest your life in that person. Um, give some... Uh, maybe a fifth grade or sixth grade rowdy group. Uh, to devote some time to trying to help them with the schoolwork or something like that. Uh, look at a needy child in the community that um, that needs some attention. Start a reading club. Uh, get into scouting program. Get into some social activity. In other words, invest your energy in something other than concentrating just uh, in areas where you become sexual interest. Get involved in a support group or start a support group. Here you are struggling. Get a group of young people together that you can do things together and that you can share with each other um, matters that you face with, etc., in a good, wholesome environment where you can meet regularly and talk and encourage each other and go out and do things. Maybe read books together, watch a movie, socialize, do a Bible study, write some songs and sing some songs, discuss topics, plan activities, go places. I think that would be very helpful. And here's a very big one. Avoid being alone with that person. Okay? If you play with fire... You're going to get burned, and a lot of people get burned because uh, the two elements come together, and there's nothing there, no agent there to pour pour water on it, and consequently uh, it leads. So avoid the the park car. Um, Avoid watching certain movies that are sexual arousing. Um, Don't bring your date to your house or your home when your mom is not there. Avoid dark places. And above all, avoid laying down. Um, if you would just take that simple counsel, I think it would be very helpful to you as a person. And then one last thing I would say, try to build up your spiritual life. Get a real close relationship with God in prayer, in Bible study, in involvement in your church ministry, in visitation, in uh, witnessing. I think if you were to do that, it would be very helpful. And finally, always look for the way of escape. When you find yourself where the pressure is so severe and you're tempted to give in, uh, whisper a prayer to God, ask the Holy Spirit to help you because He's promised you that will with the temptation, if He doesn't remove the temptation, He will always give you a way of escaping. And that may involve running and that may involve fleeing because that's what Paul told Timothy, flee 
youthful lust. But there's always a way of escape. Look for that way and seize the moment and don't find yourself trapped. Based on the statistic that you gave a little bit ago that if someone goes steady for six months, there's a very high likelihood that they will get involved. Would you thus encourage uh, couples who are getting engaged to keep their engagement to a short period of time based on that rationale? Listen, this is, this is something I wish that uh, pe- people would do. Sometimes the engagement period is so long. Well, I, would, I would more be inclined for people to have a very, uh, a, a quick, uh, not, not a quick marriage, uh, a simple marriage, uh, or simple, a simple marriage, and then have the big thing afterwards. You follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because the, the engagement period is so long, the temptation we can get married in any case. But I can I, I wish the people would say, look, let's get a marriage, simple marriage, but then we can have the big one because that prevents that period of time where you're almost saying to yourself, we're gonna get married in any case, so what does it really matter now? I think it's a big mistake people make that long period of time. Is there a way to say this is the length of time that you should date? You shouldn't get married with dating less than three months, or can you quantify things? No, that there, way? there's no fast, and, and uh, but I would say to you, the statistics indicate to me that if I'm dating for six months, chances are I'm getting involved. Clearly, I would try to reduce that period of time because the Bible says, "Every man that think of fall, uh, stand of take lead if it fall." We are all susceptible to temptation, and we ought to take the wisdom from what the statistics say. Thank you for joining us for this episode of That's Truth. Be sure you join us next week as we discuss overcoming obstacles in witnessing in the 21st century. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's true. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM, if you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.